Okay, so we have been doing this series on Tell Me About the God You Don't Believe In, which are basically exploring some of the barriers to faith, uh, which are not just for people who are like outside of Christianity. I think these are challenges and struggles for those um, who would consider themselves Christians, maybe those who were uh, raised in a Christian church but have really struggled with a lot of things about Christianity. Um, I, I think one of the things that has always helped me is uh, from a book by a guy named Harry Blumiers that I discovered in college. He was a friend and a student of C.S. Lewis's, and he said that we should never feel like we have to defend Christianity like we invented it. That we are witnesses to the truth, and as St. Augustine said, we don't have the right to pick and choose among revealed truth. Uh, in RUF, we do believe that the Bible is God's word, and it is trustworthy. We can totally talk about that tomorrow or Thursday night. I talk about that all the time with students, and uh, I love to talk about that because it really matters. And uh, the topic that we're going to look at tonight is um, one that I think probably affects a lot of you personally, uh, but also there's a theoretical aspect to it. And that's true of most of these barriers. In some of them, the personal drives it more. Uh, in some of them, uh, it's really the theoretical that is the, the bigger issue. Here, here's the, the defeater that we're talking about tonight. A defeater belief, remember, is something if you believe it, um, you probably believe it without even really knowing why you believe it. It's just sort of in the cultural air we breathe. Um, though for this one, I think there may be some experiences behind it. Here's the, here's the defeater. All you Christians want are converts. You have no respect for other people's views. And the history of missionaries stamping out local cultures is atrocious. Now, as I said, I think for a lot of people, that's not just a theoretical objection. Uh, I, I think many people's experiences with Christians have convinced them that we think of unbelievers as projects rather than people. I, I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I think... Um, you know, one of the reasons is the way people are made to feel guilty, like people's blood is on your head if you haven't shared the gospel with them and caused them to become Christians. And there's some history to where that idea comes from. Um, so I think a lot of people get really turned off to the idea. They really kind of feel like a compulsion, but it's usually a compulsion from guilt not from love for God and love for other people. I remember Jack Miller, the guy that founded Surge, the group we're going uh, to England with over spring break. He said, really evangelism, think of it this way. It's one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. It's not sort of coming from a posture of high and mighty because what do we believe about Christianity? If I follow Christ, it's because God made me who was dead alive. I don't have anything to boast of. I don't have anything to look my nose down at other people. If I think that I'm high and mighty or better or smarter or more courageous or whatever because I'm a Christian and they're not, well, then I've really lost sight of what the actual gospel is. The actual gospel, the word literally means good news, is that God made dead people alive, not because of anything that they did. Therefore, there's nothing they can boast in. If you want to look up more of that stuff, go read Ephesians chapter 2. But as I said, for many people, they have had really bad experiences with Christians. I remember um, 
<laughs> years ago when I first started RUF, one of the students was working as a waiter and um, received what he thought was a $20 bill until he picked it up and opened it up and it was a tract that said, disappointed? You wouldn't be if you knew Jesus, right? That kind of crap, that's what I'm talking about, okay? Listen, the Bible nowhere, nowhere encourages or condones coercive or manipulative ways to share the gospel. On the contrary, the Apostle Paul renounced these kinds of practices in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2. We'll read this uh, passage and then I'll open us in prayer and we'll dig in even more on this topic. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. We have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. It says in the book of Acts that Paul reasoned with people together in the synagogue and in the square, the public square, day after day. The church needs to recover the art of persuasion, which involves listening and taking people seriously, rather than just proclaiming or leaving silly tracks and other deceptive and manipulative practices. So let's pray and then see what else we can learn tonight that might help us do better. Lord, thank you that uh, the gospel is big enough and powerful enough to not need any help. And we pray, Lord, that, um, that we wouldn't be a barrier to people seeing the beauty of it. Help us even now as we consider these topics and your word, and um, may you help us to be better witnesses to you and your gospel. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are um, two unfortunate legacies of 19th century church history that actually play into this topic. Now, I know most of you, got, you don't care about church history. You should care about some church history. Um, and there's two things you need to know about. One is this guy, Charles Finney. Anybody ever heard of Charles Finney? So I remember when I was your age, I remember reading um, some little, little book about Charles Finney about how like half a million people had come to Christ under his ministry. And then I learned more about Charles Finney and learned that, well, it kind of depends on how you count things. Charles Finney was a lawyer who basically taught that if you present the gospel like a lawyer presents his case, that you can have predictable numerical results to your preaching. And he actually wrote a book on this called Lectures on Revival, which are basically like the laws of spiritual revivals and how to make them work. If ever you go by a church uh, that has a sign that says revival this week, that's the legacy of Charles Finney. Nobody did that before the early 1800s and Charles Finney. Well, here's Charles Finney. Charles Finney, rather than what even John Wesley, John Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, people that had even very different theologies, particularly about free will, all agreed that you needed to be converted. Charles Finney said, no, all you need to do is make a decision. And if all you need to do is make a decision, then all that really matters is your will, and anything is fair game as long as we can get your will to make a decision. 
He invented things like the altar call and other things that were sort of called the new measures. Um, the legacy of Charles Finney is very strong. And it actually, I think, is a huge barrier to a lot of people um, coming to understand the true gospel. I remember years ago, we used to do a WellCore event um, where we would watch a movie and talk about it. It was a documentary called Hell House. And I won't ask for hands if you've ever went to an evangelistic haunted house or if your church ever put one on or if you were part of that because this is Belmont. And I know that there probably are people here who've been involved in this, so I don't want to publicly shame you, but I do want you to think about this. Uh, we would always watch this thing, and it was, really, it was really gross, but what was really tragic is like the, the, the students would work the entire year like building the sets and working on this thing rather than talking to their non-Christian friends about Jesus. They kind of put all their hope in sort of scaring the snot out of people uh, and then sort of highlighting certain technicolor sins that their church thought were the most important things. And then they had this like Marine drill sergeant guy literally give people 30 seconds to either go in a room and make a decision for Jesus or else they needed to leave because another group was coming in. It was absolutely gross. And we watched it every year. And every year there was some sweet student that would say, well, I really didn't agree with that. But if one person gets saved, then it's all worth it. It's not worth it. Paul says, we have renounced manipulative, deceitful ways. Jesus does not need our help, particularly if it distorts the gospel. Because you know what distortions of the gospel do? They distort the character of God. And that's a really big deal. It's a really big deal. It's, it's going to put a crack at the very foundation of your faith if you got scared or manipulated into it. Because you're always going to wonder who, what God is really like. The other legacy of the 19th century is what's called dispensationalism. This is where the whole shift went from treating people as holistic human beings who needed health care and clean water, not just their souls being saved. But the dispensationalism said, Jesus is going to come back any minute. We never know when, so you better be pretty scared, and you better sort of have an urgent saving souls as your whole agenda. Before this, Christians went to places and they started hospitals. They worked for reform of practices like widow burning and other things like that. But at this point, the modern missionary movement became all about saving souls as quick as you can by any means possible. And honestly, at that point, there became a real split in evangelical churches between caring for people's physical needs and their spiritual needs. And we still bear the really unhelpful fruit of that. Now many say, when you think about cultural imperialism, that it's built into Christianity and the idea of evangelism, because how can you make converts and not be sort of assuming or implying that your way is better. Now, we talked a little bit about this in one of the earlier weeks when I talked about pluralism and how the idea of all religions lead to the same place um, is actually a more arrogant view than it appears because you're basically saying all the great religions of the world are blind to what I alone can see, which is all of them really believe the same thing. They just don't realize it. So that's actually, while it seems very humble, is actually more, um, 
more arrogant. But what I want to get at tonight is this idea about reaching across cultures to share the good news. Why do Christians do that? Well, Christians do that because that's what Jesus did. In spite of the fact that a lot of people didn't like it. The people that didn't like it tended to be his Jewish disciples. But Jesus was undeterred. You remember this interaction he had in John chapter 4 at the well with a Samaritan woman. Uh, the disciples lead to go get some food. She comes in the middle of the day. I won't talk about the whole story, but the, what's remarkable is that she's a woman and she's a Samaritan, and he talks to her. Not only does he talk to her, he like engages her in conversation. They have a kind of back and forth. And when the disciples show up, you remember what they say? They're like, uh, what is going on? What is he doing talking to this woman? Because Jews and Samaritans did not interact. Uh, it wasn't just a cultural difference, it was also a religious difference. The, the religious difference was the, the Samaritans believed you worshiped in one place and the Jews believed you worshiped somewhere else. So they were seen as heretics, besides being of another culture, another race. They were seen as half-breeds because they had um, came from people that had been moved in to this area and had intermarried with the Jews. So they were, they were bad, wrong people for various reasons. But Jesus is undeterred and speaks to her. It, it, not only that, he tells this story, this parable of a good Samaritan, right? When all the religious leaders and all the, the people that, that, that the Jewish people would have looked up to all passed by this beaten up guy, but it's a Samaritan. The Samaritan, right? It was shocking, that kind of stuff. Jesus regularly pushed against the Jewish racist views of his day. And he shows what they should have understood from the Old Testament, that God has always been about every race, tribe, tongue, and nation. That's not something that just comes out of the blue in the book of Revelation. Though it's talked about there that the kingdom to come will involve people from every race, tribe, tongue, and nation. But it's been a theme all the way through the Bible. One of my favorite places is in Isaiah chapter 49, where God is speaking to the Messiah, and he says this, It's too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. It's, in other words, it's too small a thing for you just to go to Israel. Though, speaking to people in exile, which Isaiah 49 is doing, that would be a pretty remarkable thing. If, if Israel could come back from from exile and the Messiah could come to them. But he says, that's too small a thing. I will also make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So the gospel has always been about going to all the nations of the earth. But this was hard for the early church. The early church had to take up this issue of cultural expressions of the gospel in Acts chapter 15. Why? Well, in the earliest days of the church, almost all of the early Christians had come from Jewish backgrounds, okay? But what you need to understand is some of these Jewish people who are now Christian believed that they didn't need to be Jewish to be good Christians, and some believed that you really did need to become Jewish and obey Jewish cultural things like what you eat and what you wear. So as long as everybody 
is from a Jewish cultural background and they all like the same food and they all like to dress the same way, no problem. But as soon as Gentiles begin to come into the church who don't like Jewish food, don't eat Jewish food, now some of these Jewish Christians are like, hold on, this is a big problem. It leads to the first church council where they have to get together and have a big meeting about this. Are we going to make these Gentiles become Jewish culturally to be full Christians? And the reason they decide no, they do not need to become Jewish culturally to be fully pleasing to God is because God, what God had done himself in converting the Gentiles. If you have the, the paper, this is in Acts chapter 10, and I'm gonna read from Acts chapter 11, where Peter reports to the other apostles what happened. So in Acts chapter 10, Peter is, is called by a vision to go to Gentiles and preach the gospel. He preaches the gospel to them, and what happens is they get converted, and the Holy Spirit falls on them, and they speak in tongues the same way it had happened to the Jews in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. That's significant, because when Peter goes back and reports to the rest of the apostles in Jerusalem what happened, they're all pretty stunned. They're pretty stunned. Here's what it says. Here's, here's Peter reporting. As I began to speak, this is Acts 11, starting at verse 15. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, he means the Gentiles, just as on us, he means the Jews, as at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them, to the Gentiles, as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, the other apostles, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So this is basically the experience that is in their mind when they're debating this thing in Acts chapter 15. And what they decide is, no, the, the Gentiles do not need to become Jewish, but we would like it if they wouldn't flaunt their freedom in our face. That's basically what Acts chapter 15 says. The problem is some early Jewish Christians, like I said, didn't agree and continued to stir up trouble. And that's what the letter of the Galatians is about, which we're gonna study next semester. But I will just say this, one of the mega points, meta points of the letter to the Galatians is there is no one pure cultural expression of the gospel. Now, that might seem, yeah, duh, but I remember when we went to Marseille, France uh, for a summer, uh, Wendy and I and the kids, uh, to work with the churches over there um, and with some college student interns, one of the questions in our orientation was, what do Christians think about topless beaches? Is that a cultural thing? Or is that a scriptural thing? I'm not gonna tell you, you know, what they said, right? Because I don't wanna get sidetracked. I'm saying, like, some of these things don't seem like a big deal, but then you get in a situation where, where other Christians see things really differently. And sometimes you realize, uh, I just don't think we're supposed to do that, but you don't really actually have a biblical basis for it. And so these issues, you can understand, get difficult. But here's what's, here's what's fascinating. Too often Christians have equated Christianity with one cultural expression. 
and thus failed to encourage people to explore how the gospel should become incarnated in their culture. And it should never be that way. Acts 15 is a big deal. The letter to the Galatians is a big deal. True Christianity is the most multicultural religion in the world. There is no other religion like it. No other religion like it. Over the last 2,000 years, do you realize the epicenter of Christianity has moved from Israel to the rest of the Middle East, to Africa, to Europe, and to America. But now the epicenter of Christianity, it's no longer the West. It's the Southern Hemisphere and Asia. There are more Presbyterians in Ghana, Africa, than there are in America and Scotland combined. Uh, I like this uh, quote, Lamansani. Oh, I wish you could have heard him. He came a couple times to Belmont and spoke. He was from a royal Muslim family and eventually got converted to Christianity and became the head of Islamic studies at Cambridge or Oxford, I forget which one. Um, he wrote a, a wonderful book called Whose Religion is Christianity? Christianity Beyond the West. And here's what he said, this African scholar. He says, secularism with its anti-supernaturalism and individualism is much more destructive of local cultures and Africanness than Christianity is. When Africans become Christians, their Africanness is converted, completed, and resolved, not replaced with Europeanness or something else. Through Christianity, Africans get distance enough to critique their traditions, yet still inhabit them. And it should be like that for all of us. I think part of like growing up and making your faith your own is trying to say, well, did the Bible really say that? Or is that just something I inherited, some tradition uh, that maybe looks very different now that I've interacted with other people? I think it's really helpful to read old books for this, and I think it's really helpful to, you know, to have serious experiences with people from very different cultures, particularly Christians from different cultures. I think that was actually one of the more uh, helpful things about the mission trip we did. Yes, it was interesting to interact with people from different religions, but I thought it was really interesting to interact with Christians from Pakistan and India who become Christians and yet still live it out in their culturally appropriate ways. You see, one of the reasons Christianity spread in the first place was it was the first transcultural religion in a world where there were gods for every tribe, every city, every family had their gods, every trade guild had their gods, every nation had their gods. Christianity was the transcultural religion. There had never been another one. And spread it did. Philip Jenkins has a remarkable book, The Lost History of Christianity, The Thousand-Year Golden Age of the Church in the Middle East, Africa, and Asia, and How It Died. He says this, for most of its history, Christianity was tr a tri-continental religion with powerful representation in Africa, Asia, and Europe, and this was true until the 14th century. Christianity became predominantly European by default. Europe was the continent where it was not destroyed. Much of what we today call the Islamic world was once Christian. The faith originated and took shape in Syria, Palestine, and in Egypt, and in these areas continued to have major Christian communities long after 
the Arab conquest and Islam. As late as the 11th century, Asia was still home to at least one third of the world's Christians. But we don't think of it that way. We don't think of it that way. So the church has always been multicultural. It's always been God's plan. But church history hasn't always reflected that, has it? Church history, there's lots of bad examples. There are. But I think sometimes this story is told, um, it's overtold. Now, I don't have time to go into lots of this. I'll give you a couple, a couple thoughts. And if you really want to study this more, there's a, an excellent uh, book called Six Modern Myths About Christianity and Western Civilization by an English sociology professor, Dr. Philip Sampson. I, I'll let you see the book afterwards. I will not loan it to you because I do not loan out books that have my highlighting in them because if I don't get them back, I'll be really sad. Um, but you can track down this book. It's very helpful. Uh, he, he says this, you have to be careful to not equate the colonial expansionist views with all missionaries. In fact, there are lots of stories of missionaries who stood in the way. Aristotle, rather than the Bible, was what was used to declare that some people were savages who weren't fully human. That doesn't come from the Bible. Did, did some Christians use that idea? Yeah, but they got it from Aristotle. That's where it came from. And Darwinism opened the door to all kinds of injustice and oppression. And the idea that less civilized peoples didn't deserve to rule their own lands. The advance of progress and civilization were often used to justify oppression, but neither of those terms comes from the Bible. And they owe more to Enlightenment secular ideas than Christian ones. Here's what Samson says. The modern vocabulary of savages and civilization derives from the Enlightenment hubris rather than Christianity. Indeed, civilized often refers to a modern world freed from all religion. Were there missionaries who were complicit? Absolutely, for sure. But don't miss the stories of people like Bartolome de las Casas, who opposed slavery in the 16th century in South America and debated humanist scholars who were arguing that these people weren't fully human. John Eliot, the pastor of the praying Indians, in New England, in Boston, defended Native Americans against the Boston settlers and translated the Bible into Algonquin. Many, many others. It's a complicated story, but it's one of those stories where it's worth reading a little and hearing more of the full story. I, I think one of the things, I, I do know something about music. It's, all, it's interesting, you know, why are there so little indigenous Christian music from various cultures um, before like really the, the last kind of part of the 20th century. And, and, and some people said, well, the, and, and this did happen sometimes where the missionaries came in and said, you gotta quit doing all that pagan music. But generally what regularly happened, what regularly happened was the first generation converts themselves wanted to distance themselves from their indigenous music. Because for most people in the world, not Westerners, but most people in the world, music is very tied in to magic and religion and work and everyday life. It's not just entertainment. And so many Christians initially said, we need to distance ourselves if we're gonna truly follow God now. And then it's often the grandkids that say, what about that music? Maybe now there's enough cultural distance that we can reappropriate it. Well, it's still, it still happens. I remember, gosh, um, still America exports the worst kind of music. Can I just tell you, I remember years ago going on a mission trip to Ghana 
And, um, you know, it, it, like all these different groups wanted to like play for us because we were like professional musicians in the CCM world. And they all would come and they would play and it was like, it was like the crap you'd see on TV. And, um, and, and, it, and then I was teaching guitar lessons to some of these uh, African guys and they were like, have you ever seen Ghanaian guitar? And I was like, no, what's that? And they start playing, they're like, why in the world would you try to sound like this cheesy CCM music instead of playing, like that music is amazing, right? But they, no, they would watch TV and they would see like, this is what it means to be a Christian. We, we have done a disservice to many people all over the world. All right, what about racism and slavery? Complicated subject, deserves a whole sermon. Let me say at least a couple things here. Uh, slavery, you know, was commonly practiced in the cultures and the world of the Bible. The Bible condemns man-stealing, but it doesn't always condemn slavery the way you would want. That, you know, there, there, there's lots more we could say about that. But man-stealing, Exodus 21.6, whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. That was a convenient verse for southern slave owners to uh, ignore, wasn't it? Right? No matter what you could say about slavery in the New Testament in Paul's letters, Exodus 21 was still in the Bible, and it wasn't grappled with. However, the creation account that all human beings derive from one pair and the letter to Philemon, a slave owner who Paul says, welcome back your slave as a brother because he's been converted since he ran away. Those Two things in particular destroy the logic of slavery and the basis for it. The biblical account of creation, everyone's made in God's image. And the gospel, which is about redeeming mankind from our slavery to sin and death and making us all brothers and sisters in God's family, the seeds to overthrow slavery are there. Paul in Galatians 2, if you have your, your paper, or if you don't, turn up to look at Galatians 2. Um, we'll talk about this a little more when we go through Galatians, but I just want to point out this fascinating thing. Paul condemns um, Peter for racism. But what's fascinating is the way he analyzes it. It actually, I think, helps us, rather than just shaming Peter, he says, Peter you're not walking in line with the truth of the gospel. Here's what happened. When Cephas, that's a different name, but it's still Peter, came to Antioch, I, Paul, opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men from James came, these are people, these Judaizers, these people that think that Gentiles need to follow Jewish customs. For before those people came, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. Eating with Gentiles means that you treat them like they're you like they're equal with you, and they're not gonna make you unclean. But when the people from James came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, that, that's the Judaizers. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas, whose name literally means son of encouragement, was led astray by their hypocrisy. This kind of stuff spreads through whole communities, doesn't it? Especially when they lack courage for someone to stand up. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Here's what he's saying. Basically, you say you believe the gospel, that there wasn't anything that you did 
that gave you, uh, that earned God's smile, God's favor. And yet, by what you're doing now, you're saying that there's something about you that makes you better than these Gentiles. Do you understand the gospel you say is being undermined by the way you live? The way you live is not in line with the truth of the gospel. Now, there are lots of ways to not live in line with the truth of the gospel, but I think that's an incredibly helpful way to think about how then should we live as Christians. And I suspect that you've experienced this phenomenon. Some churches major on some divergence from the truth of the gospel and others major on other ones. In other words, in some churches, they don't care about racism, but they sure do care that you don't sleep around. But both of those are ways of not walking in line with the truth of the gospel. The Apostle Paul says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Direct logic of the gospel means that God has a right to say what you do with your body, right? But also, you are not your own, you were bought with a price. You were brought into a family. Jews and Gentiles have been reconciled to God and reconciled to one another. And how dare you live in a way that misrepresents God and his plan for the world? Because that's what you're doing. But there are some churches that tolerate some sins and, 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 and minor on other ones. And it happens. We need to always be thinking about the logic of the gospel and how then should we live. Peter's refusal to eat with the Gentiles is a way of preaching another gospel by his actions. You know, Martin Luther King showed that he understood this. I don't know if you've ever read his letter from a Birmingham jail, but it's fascinating because when he calls on white pastors who are staying silent, that's really his target in that letter, not the overt racists, but the people who say, I'm with you, but I don't want to speak out loud about it. Those are the ones that really get him fired up. But what does he do? He says, you need more Christianity, not less. More Christianity. You actually need to believe what you say you believe, and you need to live in line with the truth of the gospel. This is an incredibly helpful way to think about racism. And yet, here's what's amazing to me. In spite of this, in spite of this, in spite of limiting what the slaves were allowed to read in the Bible, in, in spite of slave catechisms that said you were made to, to make a crop, that's why God made you, all that, those lies perpetrated in the name of Christianity, still African slaves were converted in huge numbers and made Christianity their own even though they were taught a distorted version. They resonated with God's people Israel and their bondage. They cried out against oppression like Pharaoh and their own masters. And they resonated with a Messiah who had been lynched. And if you don't think the cross was a lynching, you don't understand lynching and you don't understand the cross. And it's not just James Cone, though he writes about it very powerfully. I have a, a remarkable, rare little book by a white Southern Presbyterian pastor in Virginia named E.T. Welford called The Lynching of Jesus. He wrote this book in 1905, right? This is not modern woke Christianity. 
This was a Southern Presbyterian pastor whose dad was a judge who began to look at it from the legal standpoint and concluded there was no other way to think about the cross other than lynching. It was exactly what he was seeing all around him. And he called out the white church. Didn't make much, it didn't make much effect, I'm sad to say. But in a remarkable demonstration of God's power, the slaves in this country were able to read the Bible that was often kept from them and came to a true faith that has continued to bless us all and teach us all. And we certainly didn't deserve it. <laughs> but we didn't deserve salvation in the first place. So all I can say is, God has always been about all the nations of the earth. And, and, and to, to stand in the way of that is to stand in the way of his plan and his purpose that he will accomplish. You don't wanna find yourself there. You don't wanna find yourself there. God is committed to making a church of every race, tribe, tongue, and nation. And the very heart of the gospel is about reconciliation, not just God and man, but man to man, making one new man. You know, sometimes people talk about, I really like how Christianity, this church over here, they really celebrate mystery. Let me just tell you this, mystery in the Bible is never mysterious. It never means mysterious. It means something that was hidden that's now been revealed. And do you know what the mystery in the Bible is? That God has always intended to make one new humanity out of people who hated each other. And the only way that happens if we believe a gospel that says, I gave you everything, therefore I can ask you to do anything. And I want you to love people that you would never love otherwise. But the gospel is big enough to demand that from us. And Jesus modeled that in dying for people who spit in his face, right? Therefore, we can have hope that he is not gonna give up on us now. He already did the hard thing. I know we, get, we can get so sort of bummed out by the world we live in and even our own hearts, but Jesus already did the hard thing in reconciling us to his Father. He will surely complete the good work he began. That's relatively easy. He already did the hard thing. We can trust him to do the rest. Let's pray and then we're gonna sing one last him about the coming hope.